2: audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year fall guy fall guy fall guy that's what the poster said see ryan gosling and emily blunt in the movie critics say exists
0: to make you happy trying to make out because nope. i don't either it's not what i'm into right now what are you into talking yeah <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the fall guy only in theaters may 3rd rated pg-13
1: ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition
0: Bill Haig and Nick Metcalf, once again talking about the game we all love. Phil, good day to you. We do tend to be wary of not being too UK-centric, but it has to be said we are experiencing extraordinary high temperatures in the country right now. I hope you're keeping cool, sir.
1: Uh, Yeah, not really. Struggling a bit like everyone else, but uh, we've got to try and enjoy it when it lasts. We'll be complaining when it's cold again. How are you getting on? Well, not too bad. I mean,
0: I've basically been getting steadily hotter because I travelled back from covering the Open Championship at St Andrews yesterday. I thought, well, it's hot enough up here in the sort of north of England. Well, yeah, this is quite hot. And down in London, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is staggeringly hot, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, but there we are. As you say, it won't be here for too long. And it, it is a serious matter, of course, you know, health implications, but I hope everyone's uh, staying OK out there. And of course, as I say, it might not be hot where you are. We have listeners everywhere now, so let's not get too UK-centric. Phil, let's get on with it. We are delighted to say we have a very special guest with us today. We are joined by one of this sport's biggest stars. This man turned professional in 2010, and five years later won his first ranking tournament, on the way to establishing himself as one of the game's most consistent performers. Winner of the Shanghai Masters, German Masters, Paul Hunter Classic and twice the Championship League. Our guest today also reached the Masters Final in 2018 and the World Championship Final in 2020. It's a big coup for talking snooker this. We are so happy to welcome Kyron Wilson to the podcast. It's good to see you Kyron, how are you? Yeah thanks
2: guys, it's good to see you both. Um, yeah absolutely sweating, it's it's quite hot isn't it? So um yeah, I think it's one of those times where it's quite lucky to be a snooker player if you've got an aircon unit. So um, putting in extra, extra hours um, purely for the aircon.
1: How? I mean, you've played a couple of tournaments already in July. How, how were they heat-wise in the Championship League and the European Masters?
2: Yeah, you know, Leicester, um, we've obviously been based in Leicester at the morning side Arena. Um, you know, it's ideal for me because I can drive back and forth from home. Um The only downside is there's no air con in the venue. So it was quite hot in there. We had some sort of uh, fans that were put at the end of the scoreboards that were blowing onto the tables. And I had a bit of a laugh and joke with Rob Spencer as I was playing Sam Craig in my European qualifier. Um, Rob sort of turned to me after a frame and said, I've just lowered the fans there. So it's kind of a bit more like, you know, eye level so we can feel the benefit of them. And I said, oh yeah, nice one, that's fine. Sam turned around five minutes later because he'd gone to the toilet and come back and said, Rob, do you mind lifting those fans up? Because it's in my eyes and it's hurt in my eyes. I said, you spoke too soon, Rob. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's good to get back to the Bays. Um, yeah, thankfully qualified for the European Masters. So, yeah, looking forward to heading out to Firth in, in a month's time.
1: Would you? Uh, I heard that you could wear shorts in these in these tournaments. It's so hot. Would you consider that?
2: Yeah. Well, listen. I tried last year to get away with a mankini, So um, <laughs> hopefully they change the dress code soon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Kai, this is an audio service. I want to put on your best descriptive hat here. You've given and uh, myself a lovely tour there. I want you to do it for the listeners now. You, you, you're in a, a brilliant games room there, aren't you? Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's obviously awesome to have this, you know, as we were discussing off air, um, you know, the sort of COVID lockdown situation. I think it may be brought to a lot of players' attention to how important it might be to have a base from home in case anything like that ever happens again. So, yeah, I decided to sort of build a facility um, get a snooker table involved, and um, yeah, have a base from home as as well as my club in Northampton um, at Barretts.
1: It's a bit of a it's a bit of a man cave dream there. What else you got in there?
2: Yeah, I mean, would you like me like me to show you around it?
1: Yeah, well, right. The listeners can't hear, but uh, the listeners can't see. Sorry. So you just tell us what you got in there.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, I thought we were on videos. Good job. Um, yeah, I didn't worry too much about my hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Half of my room is, um, it's like a sort of games room bar area. So I've had a, a bar built in one corner. Um, I've got my dartboard. I love my darts. Um, I love my eight ball English pool. So I've got a pool table. Um, you know, that's awesome for the kids. They're only um, seven and, and four, soon to be five. Um, so, yeah, they can just about reach on the pool table. They're sort of getting their arms going, working on their cue actions. and yeah. Um, I also have a ping pong table. So me and my brother get quite competitive with that. There's a few holes <laughs> in the walls from the losers. And um, <laughs> as I say, the other side is um, my snooker table, which, thankfully, has a nice big aircon unit just above it. So, um, yeah, it's making practice a little bit more bearable.
0: Good man. Right, well, it looks absolutely lovely in there. And, uh, yeah, you must get some good, good practice done, d- despite those distractions. Tyron. We want to take you back a little bit to your early days now we have some people on here that will say they got into the game at maybe seven eight nine that kind of thing but from what I've heard it was kind of earlier with you and I've actually heard you say before you feel like you were born into snooker
2: yeah without a doubt um you know that's sort of one thing that has sort of always stuck with me I think I've got a very natural brain in terms of kind of seeing the game for what it is, Um, you know, I see it very quickly. And that's just because, you know, I've just grown up, you know, living, breathing snooker and and pool. Um, Yeah, from the age of about two or three years old, I had one of like the baby toy golf sets that my mum and dad brought for me. And I put the toy golf ball on top of a coffee table, turned the golf club upside down and started queuing with it. Just naturally, nobody told me to do it. That's just how I wanted to do it. And um, my mum and dad took a picture of that. And from then on, um, at that same house, because that was at my godparents' house in uh, in Kettering, um, and there was uh, like a games room similar to mine um, with a pool table in it where my dad used to go and play his best friend and a couple of their friends, but it was like a no-child zone. So I was always banging out the door trying to get in. So the fascination just grew and grew and grew. And um, yeah, there was a big turning point um, sort of from the age of six where I played Peter Ebden in a charity pool match.
1: And then you went on, I guess you played with a lot of the guys who are sort of at the top of the game now as well in the junior level. Is that right? Obviously a great sort of age group there with Judd and Jack and Anthony McGill. Um, That must have been real hard work.
2: Yeah, you know, Judd was just before my time, really. I was actually quite late junior coming into the tournaments I know the lads had been there for a couple of years just before I kind of showed up you know I was juggling a lot of things as a junior you know I was playing football county pool I was um obviously playing the snooker and I had a really nice like social um group of friends you know which were all friends from school now so I I lived like a really normal childhood and managed to juggle in all of these things and from the age of sort of 11 12 years old, my mum turned to me and said, "You know, you have to pick one now. Um, you can't be playing snooker. Uh, you can't be playing football. You can't be playing ball. You can't be playing snooker. Mm-hmm. All at the same time. You know, it's very weekend consuming. Which one would you like to do?" She knew I was always going to pick snooker. Mm-hmm. So from that point, you know, I kind of got in- into it from about the age of eleven, and I always remember there was a cluster of junior players. Um, you know, there was myself, Mitchell Mann. We were we were always sort of there or thereabouts, Liam Highfield, Jack Lazowski, Anthony McGill. Um, Michael White was kind of a little bit ahead of me as well. He turned pro just before me. And as I said, Judd did as well. And you had the, the Craigie brothers, mm. Sam and Stephen Craigie, they were awesome. So it was very competitive and we all kind of turned pro around the same sort of age. And it was a real sort of bulk of talent. And um, you're slowly starting to see that creep towards the top of the game now. And who knows, maybe that might be
0: sort of the new future of snooker. Mm. Did you have a possible alternative life and career mapped out at all in your head? Or were you one of those that know its focus all the way on snooker?
2: Yeah, it was always, you know, my mum and dad have remortgaged house, you know, two or three times to keep my snooker career funded and, you know, trying to help me as much as possible to make it. You know, it's not cheap to, you know, be a professional snooker player. There's lots of hotel fees, lots of flights, um, tournament entry fees, you know, this, that and the other. And um, I used to struggle for sponsors. I had one good sponsor in Q Power, which helped me a lot sort of through my junior career. But other than that, it was really, really cool. So I always gave it my all in terms of trying to make it in the snooker world. Um My first stint as a professional didn't go to plan. You know, I just sort of missed out. I think I reached 72nd in the world. And it was just as Barry Hearn had got into the game. So the goalposts have moved a little bit. Um So, yeah, just missed out. And, um yeah, it was sort of, you know, a bit cutthroat after that it was right, you know, we're going to give it one more go, but you're going to have to get a job at the same time. You know, I was living with Sophie, we're living off her wages from her job. And um, yeah, it was it was quite tough. I worked at my snooper club and carried on practising in the meantime. And, you know, Finley came along. Um, six months later, you know, my life kind of completely just catapulted and um, it's sort of carried on going ever since.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sounds like an intense period of time. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, punters when they look at results and stuff, they've got no idea what people have got going on in their in their livelihoods, in their in their personal lives, working new new family, uh, trying to make it on tour. You know, it's really hard work, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's it's really scary, actually. You know, having a child come into the world and knowing that they're basically dependent on you to provide for them, um, it's really really scary. You know, you can sort of be misled in this game that it can be quite easy and you know it's a bit of a lifestyle where you could possibly you know go partying and still get away with it and you know maybe not work so hard and you know you can get away with not treating it like a nine-to-five job and that was probably where I went wrong on my first stint on the tour so you know when Finley came along I realised right you know I really need to make some changes really need to dedicate my life to this game and try and
0: just give him the best future possible, really. Mm. Because, uh, of course, you've had many great successes. We'll come to those. But it was a tough baptism in a way, wasn't it, early on as a professional for you, which included falling off tour quite quickly.
2: Yeah, like I said previously, you know, um, Barry Hearn just got in that year. And it was a weird one for me because if you look at my sort of stats... All through the ranking tournaments, I was pretty consistent that season. Um, I'd more or less won every first-round game. You know, getting on tour as a new pro, you start from zero ranking points. And this was a time where you only had one year to try and make it count. It wasn't a two-year rolling card. Um, So, yeah, the ranking events, I did really, really well, really strongly. Um, But it was the PTCs that I sort of become a cropper, really. Um, I didn't really get it going in the PTCs. I found it difficult... Travelling abroad, um, turning up quick best of seven, no practice, mm. straight on against top, top professionals and struggled to find my feet in those. And that was a time where I think it was the top eight out of the 64 of the best performers on the PTCs that stayed on tour. Well, mine, it was a bit of a role reversal. I was doing very strongly in the ranking events, but no good in the PTCs. So that sort of was um, was the kind of ending of my first year on
1: tour. Then yeah, a couple a couple of years away I think it was. Then back on tour, and it seemed to be a bit of a lovership there with Shanghai that really got you through. Got you the, the breakthrough because it was a quarterfinal in twenty thirteen. I think I'm right in saying. And then yeah. that amazing win in twenty fifteen. And uh, I had a look at your results here, which in the main stage were amazing, but you had to win th- three qualifiers and the wildcard round just to get there. So. You, your players you beat there, Vinnie Calabrese, Mark King, Anthony McGill, Wang Yu Chen, that's the wild card round, then Perry Holt, Ding, Alan Trump. It's not bad, is it?
2: Yeah. And um, to be honest, I was literally, you know, moments away from not going to Shanghai. Um, I actually, so my dad was turning 50 for that tournament um, when the main stages were on and we were organizing like a massive surprise birthday party for him in Tenerife where my whole family were going out all of my friends um, Sophie was going out with our newborn son Finley for his first ever family holiday and you know I, I am really family orientated so for me it was kind of going to the qualifiers it was right you know if you qualify you go into Shanghai you know great you love Shanghai brilliant but if you don't you're Going to go to Tenerife, you're going to have an awesome, um, memorable experience with your dad on his 50th birthday. So, I was in a bit of a win win situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually managed to beat I think I beat Anthony 5 4 on the black to qualify, or it was very, very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad actually came to pick me up with my granddad. Um, and I was really like. I was kind of downbeat about it because I knew I was going to miss his 50th. And he picked me up and he was like, you know, what's wrong? But I couldn't tell him because he didn't know anything about it. He was
0: like, what's wrong? I thought you'd be
2: buzzing. You know, it's, it's great. I've five Shanghai. You know, lift yourself. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just a bit drained. You know, it's fine. So, yeah, you know, time went past and um, got the flight sorted. And I remember booking an Emirates flight from Gatwick, And because it was the cheapest flight, it was like a three hour drive for me. Um, So my dad took me all the way to Gatwick and I was gutted. I'll I'll be honest, I was absolutely gutted that I was leaving him, knowing what he's about to go and do. And I got to the airport and I remember ringing my coach, Barry Stark, and being like, Barry, you know, I don't think I can get on this plane. I I just, you know, when's my dad going to be 50 again? It's a massive landmark birthday. I want want to be there for him. I want to be at his birthday. You know, I'll have many more times to go Shanghai. And he turned to me and he said, Kyron, the best present you could give your dad on his 50th birthday is that trophy. So, you know, I went there and won it and he's had it in his house ever since.
1: Wow, that's brilliant.
0: (laughs) And I think they could watch it, couldn't they? on, On that tournament, on that trip. And I think there was a video going around that of them doing some pretty wild celebrations I mean that that makes it a kind of magical thing doesn't it that they're all watching you from afar
2: yeah they they kind of found an Irish bar in on the Tenerife beachfront it's called Joe Joe Maggs Foster's it's called and uh, <laughs> yeah they're like they're like proper crazy Irish um you proper crazy typical Irish and um They're lovely people. They've got, like, some signed pictures and stuff. And I actually gave them the signed snooker scene um, book from when I won the tournament when I went out a year later. So they've got it up in their bar now.
0: Oh, wow. And,
2: um, yeah, it was the only bar, because he was a snooker fan, it was the only bar that would be prepared to show it because it was unusual times, obviously, the time difference with China and, um, well, Europe, really. So... Yeah, they they shown it for them and I had all of my family sort of bouncing. I, I beat Ding five four on the black in the quarterfinals and my family sort of celebrated as if like we'd won the lottery or something. So <laughs> it just sort of shows sort of what sort of good support I've got.
1: <laughs> and it really was, you know, it's a bit cliche sometimes that this could be a turning point for players because you see sort of surprise winners from lower down the rankings and then they can't back it up. But it really was almost immediately you've just been, there's a couple of semi-finals, then you started your great run of the World Championship from then on. It really did seem like that changed everything.
2: Yeah, I've always known I've had the game and the ability and kind of the fire in my belly for what it takes to sort of be at the top of the game. And um, I didn't want it to be, you know, you win that and fade away. So I sort of found a recipe for success. I knew what it took and, It was just about believing in that then and kind of taking it forward, Um, you know, trying to work just as hard as what I had done for that tournament. Um, And just sort of, you know, trying to steamroller through the tournament and just keep going with the same belief. Um, You know, at the end of the day, the tour is very, very competitive. Um, You know, we're seeing that more and more now in, in each sort of passing year. So, you know, you can't be too down on yourself. Um, sort of as long as you can see that you're still developing as a player and you're still improving, you know, I believe that's going to keep taking you forward year in, year out. So, yeah, I've been proud that I've managed to sort of keep rising through the rankings after that success.
0: I mean, one of the many things I think about you, Kyron, is I-, I link you with sort of very special days and nights. I mean, one that comes to mind is when you beat David Gilbert. It- 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 in Germany, that was just a terrific final and occasion. And then of course, sorry to say the other side was the Masters final, which I was at, which was a very, very emotional day at Ali Pali. And a very special day actually, I think, because both yourself and Mark Allen had not won a triple crowns. We knew we'd have a new champion. There was a real kind of buzz in the arena that day. And we -hmm. saw saw your joy in Germany, your sadness in Ali Pali. And we, you know, we know how much it means to you guys it was so emotional in London, wasn't it? At that master's final and that really came out for you.
2: Yeah, it was, it was a weird one because I'd kind of come from nowhere in that comp. You know, I knew I was capable of doing it and, you know, there's no sort of pressure situation like that at Alley Pally. It's something else in front of all those fans. And it's like snooker's showcase event. So if you can hold it together and produce the goods in that venue, you can do it anywhere. Um, the same as the temper as you, as you've just mentioned, you know, that's Germany's version of Ali Pali really. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm proud that I've kind of shown I've got what it takes in both of those venues. Mm. Um, so yeah, to, to lift the German masters was an awesome occasion. Um, the sort of timing of it came, came sort of really well for me. Um, sort of just working with my brother early on. So he tasted success straight away with me. Um, But as for the Masters final, it was, yeah, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I think looking back, I could have managed my time a bit better with that. Um, You know, the start of the final, I had to make a waistcoat change because the the front of one of my waistcoats, which I was wearing for a sponsor, um, was really rubbing on my cueing hand. So it was burning like a hole through my thumb, um, where it was almost drawing blood. So I had to change that straight after frame... think it was frame two i tried to make it last as long as i could because my hotel was half an hour away i've never heard Um, i've never
0: heard you say that before that's 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 really yeah
2: yeah sophie booked me for a taxi to quickly go and pick my other waistcoat up that i'd wore for part of the the tournament um because i was changing through different waistcoats for a sponsor at the time um so yeah that was kind of not ideal during a big final um so then I obviously started to find my feet I had the whole sort of mobile phone scenario go off where I think the crowd really sort of warmed to me just because of how I handled the situation you know I uh, a mobile phone went off three times and I knew the guy didn't mean it he just probably I think a famous quote from Dennis Taylor is he probably doesn't even know how to switch it on silent <laughs> so yeah I, I sort of stopped him from getting kicked out and um After the first session, I had about sort of an hour and a half to kill. So not sort of too long to sort your, you know, your food out ready for the evening session. So um, me and Barry, we decided to drive up to the Pizza Express, which was just up the road from Ali Pali on the high street. And literally all of the fans from Ali Pali were in there. So when I walked in, there was like a big hush in the room and um, everybody literally stopped their orders and let me order first so I could get my food in time. And then literally from each and every table, they're like, you know, come on, Karen, you can do it tonight, come on. And I really felt the expectation in the room and from the fans. And um, I don't know, it kind of all built up to that moment at the end where I kind of broke down a little bit. And I think it's just because I'd, I'd given it my all all throughout that event. Um, I had a nail, nail bite to semi-final against Judd. Um, and then yeah that obviously happened in the final so you know I see it as a learning curve that you know there's two things that i told you that I can learn for the next time and um, you just take that forward and it obviously develops you as a player and a person.
1: Yeah and I hope you didn't feel bad or anything about showing that emotion at the end because I think the fans love that whether it's good or bad emotion, sad or happy, people want to see that from players.
2: Yeah and you know Jason Mohammed, who is obviously the TV presenter um, you know he's made it sort of public, that that was one of the toughest things he's ever had to do in his whole career. And, you know, he's interviewed some unbelievable sportsmen and women. Um, so, yeah, to sort of say that shown sort of how, sort of, I don't know, I don't know if magical the moment is, if that's the right way to put it. But, yeah, you know, we're, we're just human at the end of the day. We're trying our hearts out and it means so much.
1: And, of course, you mentioned the, the Alexandra Palace and the Temperature the other, the other great, possibly the greatest atmosphere, of the Crucible. You've got this great reputation as a, as a Crucible player now, a great record. Um, I think you've spoken before about sort of tailoring your whole season for the World Championship, which is completely understandable. But is there something else about being there that really suits your game, do you think?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when you go to places where you feel appreciated and it's, it's quite classy, um, that's when it brings the best out in particularly me. Um, you know I turn professional to play at places like the Crucible so yeah it's, it's like the best of the best um, you walk through the doors it's just full of nostalgia full of history um, and I'm just so grateful that every year I get to add to that history um, and yeah you know you drive up the M1 you sort of start entering Sheffield and you see the signs for the Crucible and the World Championships and there's the posters up and you know it's all over the lampposts and It just seems to be a buzz around the city. You know, snooker's really well-loved in in Sheffield and especially that end of the country. So, yeah, I love each and every occasion I get to play there.
1: And, of course, the final, playing Radio Sullivan in a World Championship final, for someone your age or around that age, must have been a dream growing up in uh, playing snooker. How how was the experience at whole? Did he say anything to you afterwards? Have you ever spoke to him about how that game went or anything?
2: No, not really. Um, For me, it wasn't really about, you know, kind of looking at it from a point of view of, you know, I've dreamed of this moment. It was right, I'm here to do a job. You know, I I have to get this job done. I want to be a world champion. This is the person I have to get past. You know, I don't really look at him from a point of view of like idolising the guy. You know, he's he's a great player and I love what he's achieved. It's awesome for the game, um, you know, and everybody involved. But for me, it's just about trying to get past another player. Um, to be honest, I think the semi-final probably was um, the struggle for me going into the final. With what happened in that semis, the first session of the of the final, it was just absolutely gruelling. Um, I found my feet towards the evening session, managed to sort of claw back. I think it was something like 8-2 down. Um, got back to 8-7 or 8-6. And I could have been within one frame after that session. And I missed a sort of tricky red down the black cushion to be within one frame overnight. And yeah, it just kind of ran away from me after
0: that. I mean, you you, you, you mentioned that the final in the end, as you say, got away from you. But I mean, the semi, both semis were extraordinary. Your one ended with, I was thinking on, while preparing a bit for this, that if the Davis-Taylor 85 Blackball ball finish was probably the most famous frame ever played. I think your frame against Anthony McGill could be a challenge of the second. I think it would certainly be in the top three or top five of nearly everybody's. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary, wasn't it? And yeah. I'm just wondering <laughs> during it, you're obviously so focused on just trying to win the bloody thing. Are, are you kind of thinking the thing that, things that are happening here are a bit mad? Are, are, can you actually think that?
2: Yeah, and I think because there was no crowding, because it was obviously a lockdown tournament, you kind of almost felt like, I don't know, like it felt a bit eerie. But then as it's going on, there were like gasps from behind the the stage. And it was just from the, the TV crew and the broadcasters and the other players practicing and the pundits, you know, all this was going on. And they're gasping at what's happening. And then all of a sudden it hits home. Oh, my God, you know, this is actually like live. This is being televised and it's going out to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think you've seen in that match two young lads that have grown up together that gave everything to get to that point, gave everything in that match. Oh. I thought it was one of the best semifinals you'll probably ever see in terms oh. of the standard. Um, and then the last frame, you know, if you look at the, the whole semi-final. Anthony went 6-2, played flawless snooker. I went 6-2, played flawless snooker. That's 8-all. I hit Anthony with everything. And then the last frame of that session, I think he just smashed up a one thirty odd break against me to sort of say, you know, I ain't going away. And then the last session, he came out playing just unbelievable snooker. I just managed to hang on to him, um, sort of still playing pretty good snooker myself. And the decider just had sort of, everything. It had good snooker, it had unlucky splits, it had in-offs, it had great right. snookers, right. it had misses, it had twitches, it had everything. So, yeah, it was awesome. Um, I actually, I got home uh, to Ketrin the day after that final and um, I sort of dropped my dad off at his house because I gave him a lift back and there was a runner and he ran past my car. He must have ran 50 yards past my car and he ran back to the car and he went, mate, that semi final was absolutely incredible just wanted to say we're all proud of you well done mate it'll be yours soon and i thought you know what like people are going to remember me more for that frame rather than getting to the final of a world championship so i think that will live long in the memory of many many people's um yeah snooker fans lives yeah
0: i i i think i think i think so it was it was absolutely captivating uh, unbelievable viewing um We actually have a question, which you kind of, I think, half sort of asked answered, but I think it's still worth pressing a bit more. Stephen Beach on on Twitter, a friend of mine actually, writes in to ask, "Was the final frame of your famous world semi-final against Anthony McGill more or less nerve-wracking due to the lack of spectators? I think you kind of suggested that you've heard some noises backstage. It was just a funny experience, wasn't it?
2: I actually think it was more nerve-wracking because... I think when the crowd are in there, it can do funny things to you and I think it can really make you zone in because you know that they're present, you know what they're going through and it it kind of brings your attention more to it. Whereas when it's just you two out there and it's just the table, the balls... And it's just like a bit of a deathly silence other than that horrible clapping machine which was going off every other minute. <laughs> I was playing an absolute worldie, getting nothing. And then I'd black off the spot and it was just a rapturous applause. <laughs> and I'm like, who's in charge of this button here? So, um, yeah, I, I, I actually think it was more nerve wracking, you know. I, I think I would have preferred it with a crowd and tried to
0: deal with it that way. That really is interesting. Do- <laughs> Do you ever talk to Anthony about that? And I know you're in that Eurosport documentary. He didn't take part, and you can't really blame him for that. But does it ever come up in conversation, or do you think no? You rather not. You rather let Anthony just not speak about it too much.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's more of a respect thing. I think I think that um, we both kind of appreciate what we both went from, what we both produced, and kind of how it went. You know, Anthony was unlucky in that decider. I obviously had a good slice of fortune right towards the end um, but yeah you know there's there's no doubt going to be many more battles between both of us in the future, and you know hopefully there's a world final that um yeah goes the distance like the semis
1: and then since then you had a great season after that very very consistent i would, I would say last season it wasn't quite as good as the previous season, certainly in terms of results. I'm not sure how you would um assess your performances but I would say generally you've been going up and up and up and up in terms of results, and then last season was a slight downturn. Is that how you saw it? And is um, yeah. how are you addressing that?
2: Yeah, I think you know. Again, as I mentioned, last season was crazy. I think you've seen lots of new emerging talent come through. You know, you had the likes of Fan Zengyi, Xing um, Tong, Luca. I know Luca's been around, but you know, he, he obviously sort of produced the goods at the UK and the Scottish. Um, and then you just add your regular sort of winners and obviously, you know, two great um, sort of snooker professionals in Joe Perry and Rob Milkins that sort of, you know, maybe not achieve what they would have liked to achieve to have special moments like they did in winning the Welsh and and the Gibraltar Open. Um, It just shows sort of how wide open snooker is now. I think the standard is through the roof. You know, as I said, I played Sam Craig in a round one qualifier last week I mean he's a great player and to play someone like that in round one I mean you know that lad is capable of potentially winning tournaments in the future he's that good you know I've grown up with Sam since like I say I was 11 years old so I know what he's capable of Um, so when you're playing people like that it just shows you how difficult it is so last season was weird I was kind of one match in every single tournament to turning it into a great tournament Mm -hmm. um for instance i lost to fanzenghi in the european masters i think sort of last 32 or last 16 we had a great match and he beat me 5-4 and i actually tuned into the end of the final and he was talking to victoria in obviously mandarin and she was translating for the viewers and he actually he said the turning point was beating karen wilson and i thought You know, a lot of competitors won't admit it because it's kind of giving an edge to someone. And because he's young, because he's naive, he kind of put it out there that that was the turning point for him. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes I might be a little bit too harsh on myself. You know, people are really trying hard to beat me. I think, um, you know, a scalp for some people. And um, yeah, I think I, I worked out. I lost to something like six tournament winners in a row. I lost to Neil in two, Joe in one. Fanzengi in another, um, Judd when he won the Champion of Champions, and it just kept rolling. It was just strange, but it is what it is. I, I felt, you know, in terms of my stats, I was the highest century maker at one point. So I was there or thereabouts. It was just the odd match was just not quite going for me. So yeah, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I just think it's just waiting for your time. Mm-hmm.
0: So, it, 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 yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Well, and we, very much look forward to, to seeing what, you know, your progress during this this coming season. Um, Let's take another question, perhaps. Tony on Twitter asked, who, who are your best friends on the tour? And uh, maybe I'll caveat that a bit by saying, how do you get on with Judd Trump these days?
2: <laughs> oh, he's all right. We had a good exhibition oh. in Germany. Um, yeah, about a year after, obviously, our Masters match. And then... Um, yeah, it was just, it was a good exhibition actually. I actually forgot my queue. So I turned up in Germany and like forgot my queue. And um, there was a German driver, I think his name was Gunther. And he was literally like seven foot tall. He was massive, a lovely guy, big snooker fan. And he was like, "Aaron, oh, don't worry, you know, I'll let you borrow my queue. So it was a bit of like a circus. I turned up at the exhibition with this German driver's queue it's about six inches too long for me and I just it just broke the ice because I walked in the dressing room and I was like look you know Judd I've, I've not got my cue you won't believe I've forgot my cue so instantly we start laughing and um, the exhibition it had like a leak on the yellow spot and uh, <laughs> Mick, Mika Kessler was the referee and she was Bro. like you know the exhibition was about Uh, it was about an hour or two hours away from starting she said there's nothing we can do we're just gonna have to try and play around it so obviously jug jug gets down to break and he says right i'm gonna put you here so straight away he breaks off puts me in this massive wet patch where it's leaking (laughs) so i come to the table with a seven foot cue with a towel on my head and break and play my next shot from there but i managed to make a century in the second frame of it so I was pretty happy with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. I, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna press this a bit more though. I've heard it say that the media, that you know, which myself and Phil are part of that, of course, talked up the 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 you and Judd thing. But there was a little bit of need at one time, wasn't there? Before you turned it around a bit, there was a bit. There was there was something there. We didn't make that up.
2: No, I think it was it was a competitive. Um, I don't know, like a competitive rivalry if you like and I think it will continue to be that I think it's good that you know I do believe that his sort of turn of you know his real success has come off the back of that um if you look at it properly you know it it came from the Northern Ireland Open he went on to win that um he then went on to win the Masters when he beat me in that first round you know he played awesome in that tournament I think he beat Ronnie quite comfortably in the final of that comp and to do that to Ronnie at the Ali Pali is, is an awesome achievement. So if you look at it, I think that's definitely helped him with his career. Um, you know, before that point, I felt I probably had his number. Um, whereas obviously he's kind of had mine um, the last season or two. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I think it's really good. It's It's encouraged me to practice harder. It makes me want to get better. You know, I do feel like I'm you know, maybe a moment away from kind of doing what he's done in the last couple of years. Who knows? But, um yeah, I think it's good for Snooker. I think it's good for the game and it's good for the standard.
1: I wanted to ask another sort of media-y question. Because um, I, I, I saw you at the English Open last year when um, the whole thing about playing on table two came up. And yeah. your point was perfectly valid. Ding was on table one. You were much the higher-ranked player. Um, you wanted to get that point out. I, I wrote up what you said and it was yeah. suddenly turned into something else. And yeah, yeah. Did you did you think afterwards, oh, bloody hell, I wish I hadn't said anything, or did you think, oh, actually, yeah, I wanted to make my point. It's a shame people sort of got the wrong end of the stick. Um, or how, how, what did you think afterwards?
2: There were two kind of scenarios which came off the back of that, which were great for me. Um, number one is the next game I was on the TV table. and number two is it gave my sponsor more airtime um you know my sponsor paid you know an awful lot of money to sponsor me last year and for me to be pushed on table two off the back of a world final the back of a semi-final and you've got world snooker saying we need to push new faces through i was just getting sick of it um you know i don't care if people say oh you need to win this you need to win that okay that's great but when you've just come off the back of a, a semi-final, which peaked at 3 million viewers, um, you know, why not try and push that further? Why not push somebody like Anthony McGill further? Um, so, you know, I definitely do think there are favourites sometimes in snooker. I think it does need to move with the times a little bit, try and freshen up a bit. It gets boring seeing the same faces all the time. So for me, um, you know... I was told that Ding was put on table one because it was great viewing time for China. Well, my my sponsor was a Chinese company. So to get that onto Chinese viewing time for them would have been great for me and my sponsor. You know, potentially it's going to cost me revenue going forward because they're going to say, Well, if you're being pushed to table two, what value have we got sponsoring you? So that's exactly where I was coming from. At the end of the day, I've got a family to provide for. You know, I'm not bothered if I upset people. You know, if, if it's getting um mis um interpreted by other players in saying you know I think I'm something special I think I deserve to be on table 1 that's completely not where I was coming from um so going forward you know it's it's great every time you get on there it's it's great for you as a business and you as a player to develop further
1: yeah that makes all perfect sense there's another sort of media you one that wanted to ask you about the world championship um after you lost to Sean Murphy and then the interview straight afterwards, and you sort of said um, you weren't that impressed with the fist pumping and stuff, um, which was, for, uh, you know, fine with any comments. But a lot of people said after that, and because Stuart had lost a mark as well, um, and he said something about um, games and shit that Mark played, and a lot of people said, "Oh, people shouldn't be interviewed straight after they lose matches." Uh, what do you think about that? And do you think you sort of you're in control of what you're saying, or is it a bit harsh straight away?
2: I don't know. It's it's kind of isn't it? Because I think it obviously makes for great viewing. Um, You know, people want to see raw emotion. They want to see people come off and maybe rant and rave. Um, You know, I feel like I'm respectful enough to not ever really do that. Um, But sometimes in the heat of the moment, you might want to say something that the next day you probably don't really mean. You know, I know that Sean become a cropper for that, um, saying about when he lost to an amateur. In the UK, and the next day, he kind of reflected on it and probably didn't mean it in the way he said it. So I can get where that can go um, in terms of maybe leaving it an hour or two. I don't know, but I can understand for viewing figures.
0: It's, it's good. Yeah, well, that, well that, that certainly makes sense. And j- just a, a sort of general one, this is kind of linked to the table situation of the English Open. I mean, you're genuinely, we weren't talking you up at the start, one of this sport's very biggest stars now. Your ranking's been very consistent. You're always getting pretty much the latter stages of tournaments. You've been in huge finals. You've won really big tournaments. Do you sometimes think, I don't quite get the attention that I that I deserve, perhaps, for what I've actually done in sort of the last five, six, seven years?
2: Um, no, I don't know. Um again, it's tricky, you know, for me coming from a point of view of, you know, trying to attract sponsors and, you know, going forward for myself as a business and as a player, then, you know, maybe there's merit in that. But, you know, I don't really, to be honest, I actually don't really pay that much attention to all of that sort of stuff. Um, You know, I try and let my snooker do the talking. I always feel like I'm always there or thereabouts. Um, So, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to improve as a player and Kind of let that all take care of itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that makes okay. sense. We think we're running out of time, Nick, aren't we? So I guess we should rattle through some uh, listeners' questions. This is an interesting one. You mentioned him earlier. Um, your relationship with Peter Ebdon—it goes back a long way, doesn't it? This is from Snooker Pro on Twitter. I'd love to hear from Kyron if he got special advice from Peter about the mental side of the game, and did he offer specific techniques?
2: Um, yeah, you know. For me, I've, I've sort of worked with Peter. Well, not worked. I've practised with him and had his advice ever since I was six years old. So, for me, he's kind of, you know, more than a friend, really, more than a mentor. Um, he's always there for me at the end of the phone. Um, fantastic advice. You know, for what the guy has been through, I actually think he was quite hard done by in terms of when he kind of dropped out of the sport. And it was fantastic to see the piece that BBC did on him. I think he really deserved that um, sort of highlighting his career and what he went through to win the world title. And you know, speaking to Peter, one thing he has obviously made me realise is I haven't worked hard enough. I haven't given enough. You know, there's more. I Peter always described it as squeezing a sponge. You know, until you've got to keep squeezing that sponge, and that's what you've got to keep getting out of yourself. So yeah, for any sort of aspiring junior snooker player that wants to learn and and progress and and become better that's probably the best advice he's ever given me you know how much do you
0: want it and how much
2: are you prepared to work for it
0: Mm -hmm. well that makes sense i'm not sure we actually got the the, there's my fault for introducing that judge trump element but tony on twitter says who are your best friends on the tour
2: sorry yeah um I mean, I travel with my brother, so we kind of keep ourselves to ourselves pretty much all of the time. You know, we're not rude, we say hello, but we very rarely mingle with other players. Um, but, yeah, I probably would say um, a good friend would be sort of... I, I spend a lot of time with Mark Joyce through our link with Barry. Uh, we were both coached by Barry from young ages Um Yeah, quite friendly with Chris Wakelin, he's local. I do a lot of practice with him. So, yeah, you know, I'd like to think I'm friends with everyone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is actually, sorry, we should do of ones, but I wanted to get one more in. But the relationship with your your brother and sort of a close working relationship as well, similar to what Judd has with his brother, is it, I don't know if it's it's more one for Taylor, I guess, but is it hard for him, do you think, that you're sort of the star of the show? you know, you're the one in the limelight or is it all good?
2: I'll I'll tell you something. Um, One thing I really will give my brother credit for is, um, you know, he's an awesome manager. He he really is great with his social media. You know, he's been awesome for me with my sponsors, my exhibitions, you know, we've had a hell of a lot of exhibitions, um, which I'm really, really grateful for. And I absolutely love doing, by the way, um, yeah you know he kind of he had a tough role to fill with with sadly you know the late great Brandon Parker Mm -hmm. passing who was my manager at the time um from there I just thought you know where do I go from there Brandon's awesome I really don't know where to go so here you go Taylor you know take the reins and um from there he did really well um you know we had an awesome run to the world final won the German Masters and um yeah we just enjoy each other's company and I think he's really starting to get to grips with what I need to do to try and get to the top. And uh, he's all for that. And he's all for trying to help me do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. And I think we had a anniversary, didn't we, of Brandon Parker's death actually in the last few days. So yeah, still yeah. still very much missed. John in New Jersey here on email. Keep up the good work with the podcast fellas. Thank you, John. Quick question for Kyron. Who is the best player who he's ever seen on the practice table? who has never quite brought the form to the big stage?
2: Oh, um, from a young age, I used to have sort of the privilege of going to an academy which used to be based in Rushton. And he has, he has brought out the standard in spells, which I've seen in practice. But from a young age, I've never seen anyone like Ding Jun Wei in practice. Um, I used to get every Friday off school to go to this academy mm. and practice with him and he would just make one 147s fun honestly it was literally like playing a playstation game it's just dot to dot and perfect position and it was just absolutely flawless and I just remember him at the academy being really quiet really like reserved and I'd just plod along and be like oh ding do you want a game do you want a game and he'd always play me and um it just, it was just awesome to watch. And, you know, playing at that academy really brought sort of um, my game on leaps and bounds.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one from our friend Snooker Loopy on Twitter. Um, are you much of a watcher of Snooker? If you get knocked out of a tournament, will you watch the rest of it?
2: Um, sometimes, um, you know, I, obviously I've spent a lot of years on tour and um sometimes it's great seeing some of these stories develop. Um, for instance, you know, I know he beat me in the final, um, Rob Milkins, but I knew what a massive win that was for him and for his career and what it meant to him. And sometimes when you have that sort of bubbling under the surface and you can kind of get catch wind of that's happening in a tournament, you know, I, I love seeing stories and I love seeing um, what it means to certain players. So sometimes I'll nip in and watch it and... Yeah, just obviously root for them, but yeah, when I'm out, I'm a bit sick, so I try not to watch.
0: <laughs> well, that makes sense. Tom, we we know you're going to go off and practice, but perhaps going to finish by asking you about this coming season and maybe a general sort of future one. What are your big ambitions in the game? I'm sure it's to win as much as much as you as you can. Is it the really big titles now, the triple crowns? What what are your big ambitions?
2: I'm actually going to kind of upset you with my answer and probably not give you the answer that you'd like to hear. But oh. it's honestly, yeah, it's honestly <laughs> about enjoying it now. I feel like I've gone through a spell where I've just stopped enjoying it because it's just meant too much. Um and I've kind of brought it home to my family life, which has become a little bit toxic. Um so yeah, for me now it's it's back to a job, you know, nine to five job. I'm gonna clock off when I've done my practice, when I've done my tournament walk through my front door and uh, become a father, a husband again. So um, for me, it's about giving it my all. I'll still make the sacrifices required to try and get to the top. Um, but at the same time, you know, I want to enjoy my my career again.
1: And that'll lead to success, I guess. I mean, everyone, whoever, I, anyone I ever speak to is doing well always says it's because I'm happy off the table. So if you can get the balance, exactly. then that's, that's the route to success, I think.
2: Exactly. And, um, you know, there are more important things in life, you know, especially with what we've all been through over the last couple of years. Um, you realise that without your, without your health, without your family, you know, what is life. So, um, yeah, that's the be all and end all for me.
0: Well, mm. I wish you, of course, all the best for this coming season. And, uh, Kyle, you've been the most delightful of guests. We're so, we're so grateful for you coming on and uh, just thanks so much.
2: No worries, thank you. It's um, you know it's great that you guys are doing this, and um, it's all for the love of the game. So um, yeah, pleasure to take part.
1: Absolutely, thanks so much, Karen, and best of luck with practice and with the rest of the season.
2: Thanks very much, guys. Enjoy the heatwave.
1: <laughs> cheers, Kieran. <laughs> all the best to you. Well,
0: cheers, guys. Uh, cheers, Kieran. All the best. That's uh, that's Kieran Wilson there, one of this sport's genuine biggest stars uh, joining us. Uh, on talking to Luke, a real coup for us, Phil, and that was absolutely smashing. Some uh, some real insights there into what into the life and career of Kyron, and we're so grateful for his time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As good as we, we were hoping for. Um, he's heading off to practice now. So we'll run through some other news, I guess. As always, with these guys, you know, we had what do we have there? We were 45 minutes with Kyron, but we could have had another 45, I think. Endless questions for a great
0: man. Absolutely right and uh, yeah, we will indeed now now spend some time looking looking at some other matters, won't we Phil, before before we disappear and uh, yes, try and cope with this rather extraordinary heat which is going to last at least for for today, Tuesdays we're recording this in the UK. Um, Well, we've had Championship League action, haven't we? And uh, let's run through the players that made it through uh, last week. Uh, I was very open goal-focused at St Andrews so I, I must admit I really didn't follow an awful lot of this, kept in touch with your tweets of course and others. But uh, there was the, in terms of the players that got through. Well, last Monday it was Mark Williams and Gary Wilson topping their groups. Uh, last Tuesday, Jimmy Robertson and Stephen Maguire group winners. Uh, Champing, Yu and Daniel Wells were the men to win their groups last Wednesday, and then Ali Carter and Pang Jung Soo group winners last Thursday. And the final week of stage one is actually underway. Stuart Bingham and Hossein Vafai topping their groups yesterday, Monday here in the UK, and some big stars still to play this week, Uh, Phil, two uh, former world champions today in Sean Murphy and Judd Trump, so it strikes me, you know, that quite a lot of these old, it's early in the season, but quite a lot of big names are making it through.
1: Yeah, definitely, Um, yeah, some top seeds have got through, there was just that one day where uh, it was a couple of big surprises, I suppose, Wednesday last week when Chang Bing Yu won his group and Daniel Wells won his group, and I think he would have gone in, Bottom seed for that group, so there are the odd surprise coming through. But um, yeah, it's the, the sort of second stage of group stages is shaping up quite nicely. And uh, as you say, this final week's looking quite tasty. Uh, we're talking to Kyron about being on table two. I'm not sure Sean Murphy would have expected to be on table two in the Championship League, but he's going to have to deal with it. But it could be it could be a lot of eyeballs
0: because that that's the YouTube um, table, isn't it? And I find yeah. that quite a good service. In I might to. Uh... I might we, we, we've we been told to stay indoors sorry not advice I took on a mammoth day of travel yesterday but we are being told to so maybe stay we, we don't need we don't really need orders to stay inside and watch snooker though do we feel that's not <laughs> that's no, we're going to we up on the, the calipos and
1: enjoy enjoyer. I think
0: yeah <laughs> exactly we've also had European Masters qualifying and two one four sevens, 147s both career firsts one for Zhang Ander in his 5-1 win over Anton Kazakov, and then the day after one for Hussein Vafai in his 5-1 victory against the uh, on Yi. And listen, I think I think it might have been 177 and 178. They're much more regular now. But when it's your when it's your career first,
1: it's still a special moment. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, you'd expect certainly saying to make some more. Um, I think he lost that first range on Yi, and I, I saw that on the live score and I tuned in and then um, he wasn't messing about from there on in, I don't think. Uh, but, yeah, he's made a very good start to the season. That look, he looked good there, looked very good in his Championship League group. And, uh, yeah, he started right on the cusp of the top 16 at the start of the season. So um, it looks like he won't take long to make it in there unless the people in 15 and 16 can keep him at bay. Um but yeah, and Zhang Anders, another one. Very good player, Um when I speak to the guys at Victoria's, he he plays there with Jin Tong and Yan and uh, Fan, and uh, he's usually the one that said, "Hopefully he'll they'll be the, he'll be the next one to break through." He's not he's not as as younger player though. Guys has been around a while, but um he could be the next to uh, harness the power of that positivity in that place. Uh, he's a very good player on his day. I hope you didn't harness too much positivity in that place ahead
0: of our match, but um. <laughs> Anyway, a word, a word, two for Mark Williams, four two down to Liam Highfield, and coming back to win five four, uh, winning the deciding frame by a point. I was thinking, has Mark been watching John Higgins' videos, Phil? That's quite, a, that's quite a Higgins' thing to do there,
1: from from his fellow member of the class of ninety two. Very much so, yeah. It was, an, uh, uh, I think Will Snoop posted that it was doing the rounds that clearance. It was absolutely superb, um, and Liam, I think, tweeted that. It's only gods that can do that to you, and uh, he's right. Really, it really takes a special player to do that kind of stuff in a deciding frame, um, and that's what Mark Williams is. Yeah, amazing stuff. Because uh, Liam was playing really well in that game. He, he was a player I mentioned at uh, now sort of predictions of the episode. I was thinking he's sort of on the on the way up in the game. He's looking quite impressive, and uh, yeah, William, <laughs> Williams did a number up running there. Um, but yeah, amazing stuff. And another, the other comeback of note was. Uh, Jimmy Robertson 4-0 down to Zhao Giambou and came back and won 5-4. It looked like, I mean, if Zhao had beaten 5-0 or 5-1, it would have been an incredible result, but the comeback was even more incredible than the shot would have been.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? Because there's quite a bit, literally, a difference, but psychologically, it always seems to me quite a big difference between the the, the best of seven and the best of of nine. I mean, I haven't got the stats in front of me, but it seems to me 3-0 down, winning 4-3, is not that sort of surprising. It does happen mm. a little bit, but it just seems like 4-0 no down 5-4. I mean, that obviously would have been an interval there. That just, I mean, there's an interval can change things, obviously, but in, in that sense, you know, a player can go to the practice table, you know, it's a bit of last chance saloon, but it's
1: quite something to do, it, isn't it? Yeah, five favourites under spin against anyone on tour, really. Well, I'm sure I was actually an amateur, but still, a very good one. I think he finished top of the Q School order of merit. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing achievement. A lot, and it's just a testamentality, isn't it? Going going 4-0 down in the first to five, it'd be very easy to almost throw in the towel. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great achievement. Um, one or two other results there. Well, Daniel Wells won his um, qualifying match as well. So, it, he's done very well to bounce back. He had a bit of a disappointment at Q School not getting through when... He'd got to, he'd got to the final round at least once, didn't he? Because I was there when I spoke to Adam Duffy, who'd beaten him in the final round. So to win a champ, to get invited to the Championship League in the European Masters, and to get through the first stage of both, is uh, very impressive. I watched a bit of Bingham against Holt. Um, Holt was playing pretty well actually, and he looked like he was going to take it to a decider. Uh, Bingham needed two snookers uh, in the eighth frame, and he got him and won 5-3 on the black. So. Painful stuff for Michael Holt at the minute on the snooker table. but I'm sure it'll, it'll turn around eventually. But, um, yeah, just unlucky. I mean, losing to Stuart Bing was no shame at all. And uh, one of the kept an eye on, always keep an eye on Anthony hamiltons results, 5-2 against Mark King. So, again, he's topped the Championship League group and won that qualifier. So, good start to the season for the Sheriff.
0: I don't think we said Oliver Brown, have we, being Stephen Maguire 5-4. for No, for, yeah, very good result, that, yeah. First win on tour. Uh, Marco Fu beating David Gilbert 5-1 caught the eye as well. A break of 115 to seal the deal for Marco. And uh, I mean, I know we all say it, but it has to be repeated. It's lovely to see him back. It's lovely to see him playing well. And let's just hope he can keep it up.
1: Yeah, because I think he'd played a championship league group the day before that, or certainly in a in couple of days before that. And uh, it hadn't gone that well. I think he'd finished, finished last of his group. Yeah, he did. Um, so it looked like maybe it hadn't. Uh, haven't been sharpening up so well over the summer, but then to beat Gilbert five-one, superb result that. And yeah, big breaks in there. So um, yeah, if he can find anything like his top form, then he's going to be a threat again. And that's that's great stuff. And he'll obviously want to be getting as sharp as possible to play in the Hong Kong Masters, which isn't too far away now, really, because you're going to have to be because it's him and Onye against I think the top the top eight in the world, isn't it, or top six in the world. Um, so, yeah, he's going to have to find some game there and he'll he'll be desperate to in front of his home crowd.
0: Yes, he, he really will. So it, it's still a bit of a, you know, that that slow burner start to the, to the snooker season. But progressively, as, as the days and weeks go on, Phil, we're getting more into the sort of the heart of the early part of the season, if you like. And of course, that European Masters in Germany, we we'll really look forward to Hong Kong to come at that, that terrific mixed doubles event. So, so many treats to come, we'll cover them all here on Talking Snooker. Now that's Mr. Snooker at the World Games, we should mention, in, in Birmingham, Alabama, in the United States, along with Paul and uh, Three Cushion Billiards, or Three Cushion Carom, as I think it's officially known, at the Games. Um, the World Games is a is a multi-sport event comprising sports, not at the Olympics, so it's nice to see snooker in, included. And it just made me think, you know, we probably said on here before, but probably maybe not for a while, I don't think. Uh, I've always been pretty clear in my position on snooker at the Olympics. I think it'll be absolutely massive, more than I think some people realize, or certainly from what I hear them say, I think I'm not quite sure you're grasping how big it would be. And I very biased, but I see no reason why it shouldn't be the Olympics, you know. Uh, people say oh, that IOC, you know, they're very into kind of more, you know, that youthful athletic sort of thing with skateboarding and what have you. But you know, there are plenty of sort of standing sports, if you call them that, cerebral sports at the game. So, you know, i have never believed you have to run around getting a sweat on for it to be a sport anyway. I think, you know, it's it's far more nuanced than that. So, you know, we know how compelling snooker is it. You know, for me, it would be a great hit at the Olympics. But um, listen, it, you know, it's a step below and a big step below. But nevertheless, you know, anything that boosts the profile of this game, you know, in, in, in an international sense, an event taking place in America... There's more good than bad
1: to it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Good to see any snooker played at any level, anywhere, really. And, uh, yeah, I agree on the Olympics. would be awesome. And It's a shame that sort of in recent memory we've had China and uh, London and they seem like good opportunities to get it in, really. So I'm not sure when the next sort of snookery playing nation is that we could leap on. But uh, hopefully we can take the uh, chance when it comes around next. But, yeah, the World Games chunk our way um, I think he only dropped two frames in the whole tournament, and he did look sort of beforehand as the standout player. He's very decent. He had, a, he had quite a lot of good results at Q School. He didn't get through, but um, he's a very good player from Hong Kong. I think he's only 23, so um, he's got a bright future. Hopefully, in the game, um, he, he beat some very good players in Q School, but just didn't quite get over there. But yeah, beat a few players in in Birmingham, Alabama. Not that not that not a natural home of snooker, but glad to see some snooker being played there. Well, you made a very good
0: point about future games, actually. I hadn't quite considered that. But, of course, yeah, France coming up, Paris, not a hotbed. I've seen a nice little French community, though, French fans at, <coughs> excuse me, at events in recent, time, so including including the Masters. and uh, But, uh, yeah, clearly not a, a hotbed country, a snooker. Uh, same for the, U- the United States, the 28 games in LA, but wouldn't we love that? And then Australia in 32, I mean... We've heard Neil Robertson say enough times enough times how how he struggles for column inches and for attention field despite his the sort of brilliance of his career. So, as you say, the best the very best chances in recent times we may have sort of seen them. But anyway, you know I'm I'm firmly in the belief that Snuka has you know very compelling arguments in terms of you know what a brilliant sport you know, it would be to watch and how much it's competed to be at the game. So, fingers crossed. What one, Maybe in our lifetimes, let's say that,
1: we'll see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess Australia is certainly the best chance of those three coming up. Uh, so, yeah, I there might be another push for that because I know people have pushed in the past and not quite got there. But it's not been too far away. Jason Ferguson spoke about this quite a few times and, uh, you know, it wasn't. It's certainly not been roundly dismissed as a chance. So, you never know. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great in terms of a load of things, funding. I think people have made that point before in terms of um, national sporting bodies will give the sport much more funding if it's in the Olympics. So um, it would be superb for the game. So yeah, let's hope hope the Australians get on board. Now, Phil, you messaged me last week.
0: Absolutely brilliant message out of the blue. You (laughs) had a surprise snooker spot. And I said, Phil, I don't want you to reveal this on Twitter. It's up to you. Of course, you're in control of your own I asked you, I said, do you mind keeping it back from a pod exclusive? You said you would. And now it's time to reveal. Which player did you literally just bump into?
1: Yeah, and he's, we just mentioned him. Marco Fu on the train from Sheffield to Leicester. Um, he must have been going down for the uh, for the Championship League. And uh, I hope he doesn't mind me revealing. But he had a sticky situation with the conductor where he'd, uh, he'd accidentally only picked up his train receipt from the... Uh, from the machine rather than ticket. And uh, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, so I didn't, I nearly went up and said, Do you know who this is? <laughs> but I didn't quite go that far. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that was that was good that we've been talking about our surprise snooker spots. And I had one of my, one of my own when I was on the train down to London and he was going to Leicester. So yeah, Marco Fu. Yet
0: another talking snooker exclusive. Marco Fu, not quite. With the, with the, with the you know, the the right pieces of paper he needed. You know? <laughs> I mean, but it has to be honest, though, I'm not just saying this in Marco's defence, but still picking up those little bits of card and paper. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, on long journeys now, you tend to be, you get them on your phone. But I think, come on, they're easily lost in this day and age, you know.
1: There maybe could be a better way of doing it. Yeah, well, I mean, there there is. To be fair, I've got a, I've always got it on the app. But he went. He went paper, and he paid the price. But yeah, it was good to see. Good to see him there. Um, and yeah, if anyone else ha- keeps having some surprise snooker spots, especially out in the, in the sunshine, I want to see. hear some more of uh, spotting the likes of Ali Carter on Broadstairs Beach. That was one of my favourites so far. So keep those spots coming in.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and without pressing it too much, I think when you when you go on shorter journeys and buy them on the day, you, you sometimes do have to get the paper and car. But yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. We have had a couple more very good ones in as well, actually. So yeah, do keep them coming. And what we're going to pre- you know, prepare to do, Phil, is in a couple of weeks' time, in our episode on August the 1st, we'll just be me and you, haven't had too many of those this summer. The priority and focus will mostly be on reviewing the climax of the Championship League the end is in sightville we also plan to catch up with the uh, correspondence we've had your views and that will include your surprise spots so more of those they're coming in a, in a couple of weeks uh, it's pretty much any other business time i record big news from dave hendon on on the snooker scene podcast field we're becoming a big hit in macedonia now i went to skopje once and you know walked around pretty much unnoticed but i'm not sure i could go back and do that again and maybe if you made a the trip there we'd have to go a bit incognito you know Become we're unlikely stars in maybe
1: an unlikely place yeah great news Yeah, Dave mentioned the the snooker scene podcast was i think you said 15 and we're at 17 so uh in the in the sporting podcast charts in macedonia so yeah lovely stuff it sounds like a snooker hotbed growing there if we're both in there um so great yeah yeah Uh, i don't know a whole lot about macedonia uh, I replied to your tweet yesterday. It was it was brought into my attention when I was about eight years old when Barnsley spent two million quid on a Macedonian striker who turned out to be a bit rubbish. And he's still our record transfer signing. So that was my main involvement with Macedonia. But uh, yeah, good to have you on board. Thanks, guys. Keep listening. Well, for my trip there, they certainly love
0: football. I mean, you who know, who and where doesn't really. But that, there's, a, that, there's a, and I, I imagine there's a lot of football podcasts towards the top of that chart. So, yeah, we're... we're we're, we're very proud of that, we're very happy, whatever you're listening to us, and, you know, to, be, to get serious, we love hearing from our international fans. It reminds us not to be too UK-centric, for one thing, and we love hearing, if you're in some of the places we wouldn't think about necessarily, you know, whatever you are, if you're listening to us from away from the UK, where we are, you know, mainland Europe, United States, maybe South America, further afield, who knows, Australia please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. It's talking snooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talking snooker, talking snooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talking snooker. We've got Rebecca Kenner next week, Phil. Still time to get your questions in for Rebecca uh, again to those uh, those same platforms, talking snooker on Twitter or email talking snooker at yahoo.com. So we'll really look forward to that. Another, another cracking guest. And uh, well, the... the the summer season continues and, well, we're really in high summer now, aren't we? So a bit of a slow burner, but it means
1: we're having some lovely old chats on here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there's actually loads of snookers, isn't there? It's just it's just relatively low key, but um, it's important stuff. It's all ranking tournaments. So, yeah, been enjoying it. And then we're waiting for, I suppose, when's the first like, actual, yeah, it's the European Masters, which is about a month away now, which is the main stage of that. But, yeah, hopefully we're making the most of these summer months to have some good chats, as you say we go it's nearly midday isn't it and that's the start time of the championship league isn't it yeah perfect I don't know who's on commentary today yesterday we were recording this on uh, Tuesday and yesterday it was Rod Lawler uh, as the player commentator who was very good so uh, I'm not sure who's on today but I've said this a lot of times but I really enjoy those different voices we had on and uh, Rod was another good one Fergal did a, a did a turn didn't he I think yeah also very good yeah and they even pair, usually they keep them on with the sort of the, the journalists so usually Dave or Phil but there was a good couple of friends to listened to where it was Fergal and Dominic Dale, which was some great chats. That was quite enjoyable. Right. <laughs> I think Dominic always wonderful value, isn't he? Well,
0: unless you've got anything more pressing to say, sir, we are we are going to shoot off and say it's great to see you. It was wonderful
1: to be with Kyron and uh, we'll be with Rebecca Keller next time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, all good for me. Looking forward to watching a bit of Judd and Sean this afternoon. And yeah, as you said, there's some big, big names to come this week in the Championship League. So yeah, uh, it's, it's, we're getting, getting through it. I think the, the, the there is some, I watched some real bad matches yesterday, I've got to say, but I think we've got those bits out of the way um, and it's coming to the business end, which is, uh, as I say, a lot of good players have got through. So the, the final couple of group stages will be great. So worth tuning in. Yeah, I'll name some names. now don't name some names. Let's not, <laughs> that's not, that's not, that's not end on that note. Um,
0: great to see you, Phil. And uh, we'll be back, back next time with Rebecca Kennedy. We look forward to your company uh, then keep your thoughts coming to us, please. We always like them, particularly in these quieter times. We really rely on them. So keep your correspondence coming in. But for now, from Kyron, Phil, and myself, cheerio. Sports
1: Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.